I'm going to be talking today about the second part in a message called the the lie of envy, the uh, the fact that we're all envious and we have things in our lives that that make us envious of others. But I'd like to start with a word of prayer, please, as we look to the Lord. Lord, you're a good, good father. You're so full of love today. You've called us, chosen us, equipped us to be your sons and daughters, and we're thankful for that, Lord. I thank you for the blood of Jesus covers us. A knowledge of you, Jesus, is what life is about. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you are not upset with us, that you're not mad at us, that you treat us as loving sons and daughters, that you delight in us, that your favor rests upon us, that your grace and mercy is there for us in our hour of need. And we adjure you and ask you today to come by the power of your Holy Spirit to anoint your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It brings life to us in the midst of darkness. It brings hope, it brings truth, and it brings eternal grace to our ever-ceasing heart that longs to be in your presence. What a wonderful, wonderful God you are. You've created us in Christ Jesus to do good works that you have created in us from the foundation of the world. And we do know today that a good work will be accomplished in your word, for it will not return void. For it will be light to our hearts today to enlighten us in what it means to know you. Would you put power on your word today as I attempt to proclaim it? And we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to tell you just a a personal story about my life, just really briefly on where I've been walking recently. Many of you know I was a pastor for many years. Let me get there where where I'm going. I was a pastor for many years. But several years ago, I was uh, laid off of a church that I'd been with for 23 years, uh, which was devastating. Uh, The elder board that released me were people that I brought into the kingdom, and we ran out of money. That's that's always funny to me that the, the church of the living God can run out of money that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But uh, many years I had found a lot of my identity in my position and my success as a minister of the gospel. And I didn't realize at the time, but I see it now. As a young pastor, I felt like the king in the book of Proverbs. There are three things which are majestic in pace. Yes, four which are stately in walk, a lion which is mighty among beasts and does not turn away from any a greyhound, a male goat, and a king whose troops are with him. Now, I felt like that as a young pastor, that I was in growing churches. I had pastored churches. I was a senior pastor in a couple of churches. I was a 
church planter out in Colorado. I planted a church down in South Alabama. Uh, I was a youth pastor. I had a large youth group in West Plains, Missouri. Uh, We lived uh, in uh, Montgomery. Uh, I worked in a a bakery. Uh, I was a worship leader for many, many years. Uh, Led bands. uh, sang. Uh, I, I remember one time singing down in Florida, and I was introduced as Ron Hockaday from Lynette. And you talk about an identity crisis. And and even the the funny thing is, when I was uh, playing my guitar, you know, and I would stand up, and my G str- G string on my guitar broke. And it's kind of hard to say my G string just broke <laughs> in front of a whole group of people. But I had it going. I mean, I really had it going. I mean, my I'd, my identity was in the ministry. And, and I I thought, well, no way this is going to ever end. But, you know, God has, has his way of working in your life. Well, he shut down all of my ministry. I, I'm telling you, he shut it down. And he, he sent me into the wilderness. And I'm, I'm talking about the wilderness. Uh, I lost the pastorate. I lost all my titles. Lost all my positions. I lost... I mean, I've got uh, several degrees. It's kind of hot in here. I think that's what a degree is now. But then I was involved in a large ministry. I, I was the state youth pastor for one of the largest uh, li- uh, ministries in the state called Life Skills Ministries. And then the founder of that ministry was murdered. And the whole ministry shut down. So... That sent me into a whirlwind of confusion, causing me to examine the purposes of God in my life. I mean, when you lose everything, I had a family to support. I had to make a living. And, you know, when you lose everything, you lose your income, you know, you got to eat. Well, that's when I went into a real tailspin because I had uh, a daughter going through a divorce had, who had three children, had a wife. Of course, my wife's always had a job, so it's kind of nice. <laughs> but but when I lost everything, I said, well, Lord, what am I doing on this planet? I mean, you called me to preach the gospel. You called me to, to, to lead people to Christ. You called me to do this and that. And I said, okay, God, what are you doing? He said, son, I'm trying to get you to sonship. So he stripped me away everything that I thought was valuable in my life. And he sent me to uh, an elementary school called West Elementary School to be a custodian cleaning toilets. And the reason I got that position was not because I really sought it. I just had a cleaning company at one time in my life, and the principal called me up and said, would you consider coming to work for us? Now I've been there for seven years, and it's, it's put bread on my table. But one thing I know that I can stand before you this morning as a son of the Most High God, a king and a priest. That's who I am, and that's who you are, period. My identity is not what I'm doing this morning, which is is, is really a joy for me to do. I still love to speak and to preach. Of course, I have no leadership responsibilities in my home church. I have no home group that I'm leading. I have no titles. I I haven't even been to my home church since my mother-in-law got sick in three months. But I have a a deep, abiding presence of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what I want to talk to you about. 
how we deal with envy in our heart, envy in our hearts, is to have that intimacy with the living God and know who we are in Him. We we want what someone else has. When we envy, we want what someone else has. But when we have all that there is, why would we want anything else? And so I want to start. I just wanted to start with that introduction to tell you where I am right now. And I'm far from being where I want to be. But I'm farther along than I was several years ago. And I've been been a Christian for over 50 years. But I know that sonship is something and daughtership. I mean, sonship is is men and women, but I, I used, if you want to call it a daughter and a son, to know the knowledge of Christ and to move toward that knowledge is what life is all about. Now, I want to begin uh, to talk about this morning in Psalm 131. Psalm 131. with a passage of how we allow God to shape and mold our desires through what the psalmist calls the weaning process. If you're uh, familiar with the development of children, there's a process that children go through called the weaning process. So I'm going to read from the New King James Bible from Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Can you say that with me? Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I want you to think about that just for a moment. As you're moving out of envy into relationship with the living God, know that you have to calm and quiet your soul like a weaned child with his mother and your soul will be calm Within you, It sounds like Solomon, the son of David, may have understood his father when he said in the book of Proverbs, the heart anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad and pleasant words are like a honey, honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. You see, when your soul is weaned from anxiety, when your soul is winged, weaned from insecurity, when your soul is weaned from envy, you'll have health in your bones and you'll have a sweetness to your soul. I'm telling you, if you've ever watched a mother weaning her child. Now, I've got three children now in my house, and it's been a long time since we've had little children, but I'm watching my daughter wean her little two-year-old daughter. And if you've ever noticed when a mother weans their child, that child does, does his little temp- temper tantrums, you know. First, the child is weaned from the mother's breast. Then the child is weaned from the bottle. 
Then the child is weaned from that little thing called the pacifier or the soother. You know, my little granddaughter runs around, pacifier, 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 and just puts that pacifier in her mouth. And mom's trying to say, no, you don't need that anymore. You know, there are many adults that still have a pacifier in their mouth. They're not weaned yet. And you know what weaning does? It changes our desires. See, when a parent withholds something from a child, the child thinks the parent's mean and nasty and you don't love me, you know, they, you just hate me and you don't want to, I've got to have that milk. It's, it's like when a baby is weaned from his mother's breast and starts going to milk and then starts eating solid food, the baby and the child, the mother is, is releasing them from the things that they really desire. They're withholding those things and then the child is then at peace after they realize that they're not going to get what they want. You see, God does that in our life. That's what David said. He said, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes are lofty. You see, when we're envious, we have a haughty heart and lofty eyes. We have these great aspirations. You know, I, I remember when I was in Colorado, I was going to have a church of a thousand. I mean, we were going to reach the whole city of Pueblo, Colorado, and there may not be anything wrong with that desire. But he's talking about selfish ambition. Ambitious, ambitious to make us look good. What James calls selfish ambition. But God says that he will wean us from those desires so that all we want for him. For, all we want is for him to be our Lord. See, withholding changes the appetite. In weaning us, God withholds what we want in order to change our desires. We are weaned from the mother's breast, and we're weaned into that place where we're calm and quiet in our souls. Have you ever tried this driving down the street when your soul is just churning and you're thinking about what, you, what you've got to do during the day, what you've got to do during the night, all the things that you've got to do, and you say, Lord, would you calm and quiet my soul? See, I'm a very intense person. It's very difficult for me to calm and quiet anything. My house is not calm and quiet. But I've quoted this verse the last six months more than any other verse. Lord Jesus, would you calm and quiet my soul? I read this to my mother-in-law constantly when she was dying this week. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you calm and quiet my mother's soul? And I spoke to her soul. Would you be calm and quiet in the presence of the Lord? Do you think Jesus was calm and quiet? I shared this last time. You know when the disciples were in the boat and the waters were coming over the sides and they were saying, Lord, don't you care that we're drowning? Well, where was Jesus? He was asleep in the boat because why? He was calm and quiet in his soul. Now, you can be calm and quiet in your soul and be loud and boisterous in your words in a good way if you have to be. But if you're calm and quiet in your soul, guess where envy goes? Out the window. If you're calm and quiet in your soul, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing around you because you're calm and quiet. So that's the first thing this morning that we can do to deal with envy in our hearts is to allow God to shape our desires through the weaning process. Secondly, 
we can pursue the greatness of the love of Jesus. See, when you're pursuing something with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, especially the love of Christ, you're not going to be concerned with what other people are doing. You won't have time to think about what they're doing. You notice how people talk about other folks. You know, you see it on the TV and the news and the, all this that's going on, this political, ever since Mr. Trump got elected. It's just amazing what people talk about, about everybody else, except really what's important. <laughs> well, and that's the greatness of the love of Jesus. That's what's important. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians. Nelson preached on this several months ago, probably a year or so now. I think it was on the love, the love chapter in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 13. It was a, Paul had a high level of interest in the word love and, and the attribute of the love of God. In the fourth verse of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Now, notice the next phrase. Say it with me. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. Love does not envy. You know, if you, if you meditate on that, you know you're walking the walk of Jesus when you're not envious because you're walking in love. Because perfect love casts out all fear. And fear has to do with torment, punishment. And fear has to do with envy as well. So love is not envious. Love is not envious. That seems simple, doesn't it? So what's the greatest deterrent to envy? The love of Christ. Simple. Simple. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, we see another verse. It says, if one member suffers, it's talking about the body of Christ. This is in the context of the, of the community of the saints when they all get together. All the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, envy happens. Now, it's really easy to suffer with someone that's suffering. But what's hard is the second part of the verse. When another member is honored. When one of your members is promoted to a position in the workplace or even in the church. Uh, someone that you love is promoted to some job that you may have wanted. That really is chaps some people. If you're, if you're in a company and you've been working with a co-worker for 22 years and the boss comes and says well I'd like to give you a job and that co-worker says well I wanted that job and so that co-worker becomes envious of you and then you've got to deal with all of that so if we honor a fellow believer in the family of God we're walking in love how can I rejoice with them when we see someone promoted the secret is living for an audience of one. Did y'all hear that? The secret is living for an audience of one, and his name is Father God. You know, there's a fascinating example in the Bible of even the animals finding purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read about animals in the Bible, it's always intriguing to me how God speaks to me about animals. Maybe I should have been a vet. I don't know. Proverbs 30, 24 through 28. There are four things which are little on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they prepare their food in the summer. 
Children, you didn't know that ants were, were, were preparing their food for the summer. That's good, isn't it? The rock badgers are feeble folk. They make their homes in the crags. The locusts have no king. Yet they all advance in ranks. The spider skillfully grasps with its hands and in it is in kings and it is in the king's palaces. You know, I want you to notice verse 27. The locusts have no king. All right, if you know anything about locusts, I know y'all are really excited about locusts this morning. But locusts travel in packs. They travel in large groups, but they don't have a ruler. They don't have a leader. They don't have a pastor. But they all march in rank. Why? Because I can only use a human analogy. They're not envious of each other, and they're marching along with the same purpose and the same values and the same goal. They have the same thing in mind, and that's to eat. Well, the kingdom of God and the body of Christ, with no envy, marches in ranks. Even if you don't have a leader, you still march in the ranks of unity. And that's an amazing thing. They're a unified front. They have a unified purpose. They stay together not because they're drawn by the magnetism of a leader, but they're galvanized by a community vision. They stay together by doing what? Honoring one another. Here's a declaration for you this morning. Psalm 16.3 As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight? That's from David. But I want you to see the Father speaking that over you as a congregation. You are the excellent ones in whom is all the Father's delight. That's a good word. You see, the, the Father delights over you. Zephaniah says the Lord delights over you with singing. He rejoices over you with singing. It's like when a father sees his children. It's, it, the the, the, uh, the analogy is, a, uh, the example would be a father jumping up and down and turning swirls because his children walk into the room. Just like this. He delights in you. And if you're delighting and you're loving, you're, guess what? You're not going to envy. So love is the answer for envy. First we're weaned and then we learn to love. Now, moving on, another cure for envy. Number three is to realize that God, this will really help you, has set you free and invested in you in varying degrees of ministry and effectiveness and influence in the world. We've been empowered by the grace of God. Each one of us have been empowered by the grace of God. And here's a good definition of grace. The power to be what God has created you to be and the ability or power to do what God has called you to do. Nelson preached several weeks ago on, on the talents in Matthew chapter 25. He did an excellent job. I listened to the whole sermon because that was one of the uh, messages I was going to bring, and then I saw that he did it. So that was good. But here is the grace. You see, every one of us in this room has been given the grace of God. When you understand grace, then envy will be eradicated from your life. Grace, again, is the enablement of God through the power of the Spirit that empowers you and me to do the will of God in our lives.
Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. This is the word that I wanted to... This is the, the word grace. Listen carefully as we read. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's good, isn't it? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I. But the grace of God which was with me. You see, Paul, Paul if, you, if you read in the book of Philippians, he talks about all the things that he accomplished. All the, he said, I count it all dung for the sake of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He had all these resumes, had all these degrees. And yet he said he was empowered by the grace of Almighty God. The enabling power of God. Now do you see what Paul is saying? The enabling power is the measure of God's grace in your life. See, here's what we do in the world today. We measure people as equal to us or below us or above us. Are are you hearing me there? We look at another individual and we say, well, they're equal to me or... We look at another individual, they're below me, or we look at another individual and we say they're above me. Now, in other words, what I, what, what's our criteria there? What I perceive myself to be. Do you see that? When we look at somebody else, we examine them based on what we think we are. And that's not the way to look at life. You see, perception is not God's reality. See, each person in the kingdom has been given a measure of the grace of God. Now, I measure a lot of things. Now, that word measure is the word metron. It's a portioned off measure, a determined extent, a measure or limit. I do a lot of measuring in my job. If if I could have, I would have illustrated it this way. Suppose I have a, a... a mop bucket, and I have to put two ounces of product in the mop bucket. And many of you may not know this, but most custodians make a mistake of thinking that you have to pour the whole jug into the mop bucket so it'll make the room smell. No, that'll that'll not only kill you, but it it will also make the floor all kind of sticky. It, it make the floor sticky and messy. So you have to measure out the product that you want to use. Now, you ladies and gentlemen that cook, you know that you... I don't ever measure anything when I make pancakes. I just put them in a bowl and it doesn't work. It it doesn't work. If you're a culinary specialist, it doesn't work. You have to measure out the exact portion of the measure that you want the product to come out to. Well, God has done that with us. That's what the measure of faith... He's given every one of you in this room the exact amount that you need to fulfill the purposes of God in your life. He gave you some, gave you some, you some, you some, all of you. He gave some. He gave me some. Now, he may have given somebody more grace to pastor a church that goes to 22,000. He may have given somebody grace to be an organizational leader and a CEO. He's given Nelson grace to be a Bible teacher 
and have influence and missionary opportunity in Mexico and other places. When he goes out, he travels in, in his measure is influence, which I'll get to next, is where God has placed him. So there's no reason for him to be envious of somebody that's pastoring over in uh, Hoover. That's not his measure of influence. Nelson doesn't drive to Hoover every night and preach the gospel standing out in front of books a million. That's not his measure of grace. You see, Paul was called to the Gentiles. He didn't go to the Jews. They rejected him. You know, Jesus was the only person on the planet that ever was created that he didn't have a measure. And in John chapter 3, 34, it says this, For he whom God has sent speaks the very words of God. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. See, Jesus didn't receive the Spirit of God by measure like us. He had all of it, all of him. See, the rest of us receive an anointing from the Holy Spirit by measure. Are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? And I'll explain the term a little bit further. We look at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Look at this one. I want you all to look at the first part of this verse. But to each one of us. Who's that? That's all of us, isn't it? To each one of us, grace was taken. It was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, some measure, some of your measure is filled up like a jug. Others have a small measure in a little, little cup of six ounces. You might have a great measure or a small measure, but your worth and your value in the sight of God is all the same. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. I don't know why God did that. Do you? If you want to know, go ask him. God, why did you give me only this portion of the measure of grace? Why didn't you give me this? Can the one who fashioned you, the potter, can the clay say to the potter, why, oh God, did you fashion me this way? Hmm. God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we're to think soberly as God has dealt to each of us a measure of faith. Here's, here's something I want you to remember. There, this is really good. I don't know where I got this, but it's really good. There is no box of backup yours sitting in God's workshop. Ain't no backup yours. You're it. Isn't that good? One writer put it, do the best you can with what God has given you the most of. You see, you don't want to do things that you're not good at. Have you ever done that? I mean, it's, it's just, when I was a pastor, I would, and you have to do this as a pastor sometimes, I would do things that I just couldn't stand doing. I just kept doing them because I was being paid. But when I got into my sweet spot, I would excel in those things. And sometimes I wasn't even paid to do, be in my sweet, sp sweet spot. But you know, in the book of Galatians, in the message translation, it says this, make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you've been given 
and then sink yourself into that. Don't you like that? Don't be impressed with yourself. Oh, I'm impressed. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. If you aren't you, you don't get you, and the world misses out. At your best, who are you? Who are you at your best? Then forget all the rest. Hey, that was good. I I made that up just then. (laughs) At your best, who are you? And forget all the rest. I was going to say go brush your teeth with zest, but that (laughs) that wouldn't have been good. Listen, when Paul the Apostle was called to ministry, James and Cephas and John, who were the pillars of the church at the time, saw the grace that was given to Paul. And they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship because they saw the measure of the grace that was on his life. They perceived it, called it out, and said, Brother, you're one of us now. Now, John said this in John 3.27. This will help you. It says, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. Nelson was talking about talents. Listen, you can, if you're not wired to be a piano player, you can go to Billy on the worship team and say, I'd like to play the piano. And you can go over there and hit those keys, and nothing will come out. You can even get your mom and daddy to give you lessons for 14 years and you still don't know how to play, if God hasn't given you the raw talent or the grace to be a piano player. Are you hearing what I'm saying? You, you, you get in your, you're getting your spot. You know, Max Lucado? <clears throat> Max Lucado was leading a church in San Antonio, and he was doing everything else except what he was created by God to do. And he went to a... a, a uh, some kind of a company, and the guy asked him, what do you like to do the best? And he had one word, message. He was a speaker, a preacher, and a writer. But he wasn't doing any of that. And he was burning out. That's why a lot of pastors burn out. You know, when I was 26 years old in a church down in Daphne, Alabama, I was the senior pastor the youth pastor, the choir director, the hospital visitation pastor, the lead elder, home group leader, home group overseer. We, we, we just did, I did everything. And one Sunday I woke up with a temperature of 104. And there was no one available to preach. And they called me and said, where are you? I'll be there in a few minutes. I've got 104 fever, but I'll be there. We're not supposed to do everything. We're supposed to get in the measure of grace where God has given us and begin to move in that ministry. You remember Paul and Barnabas? And I'll move quickie, quickie, qu- <laughs> quickly. Paul and Barnabas? Read the whole story in, in the book of Acts about Paul and Barnabas. It'll mess with your mind. It started with Paul and Barnabas. Then it goes Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, and all of a sudden it's Barnabas and Paul. No, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Paul, and then all of a sudden it's Paul and Barnabas. 
You know why? Because the grace of God was greater on Paul. Paul was a mentoree of Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's mentor, and all of a sudden, Paul is promoted above Barnabas, and they split up. You see, we can't hold on to anything because you never know. The grace of God was upon him. Now, finally, when we determine the grace that's on our lives, that will determine, finally, our sphere. Our sphere. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, what is a sphere? So we've determined that the grace of God is on our lives. And now we're going to talk about the sphere, and I'll bring this to a close. Sphere. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. We, however, will not boast, boast beyond our measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you, verse 14, for we are not overextending ourselves. <laughs> I like that. As though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. Now, the word sphere is the Greek word for a definitely bounded or fixed space within the limits of which one's authority or influence is confined. A province or region assigned to a person. Let me read that again. A sphere is a bounded or fixed space within the limits of which one's authority or influence is confined, a province or region assigned to, his, to each person. Every believer has a ministry assignment entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. That's what your sphere is. How many of y'all like the Olympics? Okay. If you've ever watched the 100-meter dash and Usain Bolt, have you ever watched Mr. Bolt run outside of his lane? What happens to a man or a woman who runs outside of their lane? They're disqualified for the prize. Well, there are a lot of Christians that are not in their lane. All right? That's what the sphere is. You see, when you stay in your lane, you'll win your race. You're not worried about other people's labors. You're worried about, you know, when a runner's running down, he's not to look to the right or to the left. He's looked straight ahead to the prize that's set before him or her. If you've ever noticed a soccer game, if you've ever noticed a football game, when the players stay in their lanes, what happens? The team wins the game. So that's what the sphere is, the ministry that God has called you to. Now, how do you identify that metron and that, that territory? How do, you, how do you identify it? Well, first you have to have the sphere of yourself. You've got to know who you are. Then it's your spouse if you're married. You have a sphere. If you're a husband, you have a sphere of influence over your wife. If you're a wife, you have a sphere of influence. You see, when you're married... You don't go to the sphere of your neighbor's wife. You don't go as a husband and begin to love your neighbor's wife. <laughs> you love your wife. 
because that's where your influence is. You love your children. That's your sphere, your family, your money, your house, your possessions, your job, your ministry, and your community. And God gives you more influence in each one of these areas as you're faithful in those areas. So that's your sphere. You see, Paul didn't start out as an apostle to the nations. He started off as a converted Christian, and he went to the desert for about 14 years and didn't minister hardly to anybody. So your sphere has to develop through your life. Now, let me illustrate it this way. How many of y'all have ever visited a relative and found a rock and thrown it into the pond and skipped that rock and you've seen all these ripples running down that pond? Well, that's what a sphere of grace and authority looks like. Some people are smaller rocks than others. Some people have an influence that may only go to six or seven people your entire life. Some people have an influence over cities. Some people have an influence over states. Some people have an influence over nations. Some people have an influence over many nations. But all of us have a sphere, and we're not envious of someone else's sphere when we realize what our sphere is. You see, you don't want to be a children's worker if you have no sphere in that area. You don't want to teach children if you hate children. You don't want to be an organizational leader if you have no organizational skill. You don't want to be on the worship team if you can't sing. You don't want to go to Billy and say, Billy, I got this song that the Lord gave me. And Billy said, well, I understand why. He said, I, I want to give this song to the Lord. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, the Lord, the Lord was going to give it back to you because it's not that good. You know, you, you, you either have it or you don't. You know, every football coach would tell a football player if they've got it. You know, my wife tells me, honey, you need to stay out of that area. You're not really good at that. No, no, but I got I to gotta do this. I took a fan apart one day. Couldn't ever get it back together. <laughs> Mechanical, I'm getting better because I'm getting paid now as, as, as the head custodian. I'm, I'm doing ballast and I'm doing other things mechanically good, better. But that's not my sweet spot. You see, are you getting what I'm saying? Some people will bless a home group. Some people will bless a church. Some will shake a city. Some will shake a nation. Your measure of grace determines your influence by the very grace of God, whatever He's given you. See, it's a sovereign work of God. You can't give something away that you don't have. See, when Jesus ministered to Peter... And the disciples, when he washed their feet, Peter wasn't able to minister yet because he hadn't let Jesus wash his feet. You can't give away what you don't have. That's how, that's how easy the sphere is. Now, in the book of Exodus, it says that Jethro spoke to men and selected people. We're still talking about our sphere. You try to de deliver several million people out of the city of Morris. Of course, there's not that many people in Morris, but you can kind of see what Moses had to deal with. You shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, hating envy, 
and place such them over rulers of thousands, hundreds, and fifties. These rulers had the sphere of influence, and what were they? Rulers of what? Rulers of tens, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties. Your influence may be what? Rulers of tens. Your influence may be rulers of hundreds. Your influence may be thousands. But find out what your sphere is. You see, not all teachers should become principals. Not all sales managers should become salesmen. Not all homemakers should go out into the marketplace. Not all marketplace people should be homemakers. You know what I'm saying? Thank you, babe. My daughter just, yeah. You see, you've got to be in your sphere. Now, the last one is, is in, in 1 Samuel 18. I'm going to land this plane, I promise. This is a whole other message in itself, but you ladies can appreciate this. David, this, this always blows my mind. David had just killed Goliath. His boy is 16, 17 years old, killed this giant, and now look what these ladies are saying about these teenage, this teenage kid. So the women sang as they danced. Saul is slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, they may not have sung it like that, but that was good. Number eight. Then Saul was very what? Angry. Why? He was jealous and envious because he didn't like David's sphere. And the saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands. Oh, to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? What more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9, so David did what? I mean, Saul did what? Eyed David. He watched him. Watched him like a hawk. Boy, you're, you're at work and you're eyeing that other person over there because they're getting more credit than you. They go to the boss. Well, why didn't they tell me that? You know, he eyed David. He was envious of David. Now, get this. David was a little kid, and he killed one man, yet it says he slayed his ten thousands. Well, he got credit because Saul couldn't go to David, couldn't go to Goliath. That's why he was anointed, because he had the grace, and his sphere was greater than Saul. Just think of what Saul could have done if he would have been secure. He would have been a spiritual father to David and released him. Do you think that we serve God in a pond or in an ocean? An ocean. There's an ocean of human need that are, there's plenty of room for thousands and tens of thousands of ministries throughout the world. The sphere will not diminish. And here's why. The final key no one on this earth is my competitor. This is the end of the series. No one on this earth is my competitor. That's the whole conclusion. Can you live a life with no one that you're competing with? Now, I'm not talking here about healthy uh, competition in sports. I'm talking about envy. If you don't have a competitor... We're running a race against ourselves. 
We're running a race against ourselves. This is what Paul wrote in Philippians 3. Look at it. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Say that with me. One thing I do. This is what you can do to overcome envy. Forgetting those things which are behind. Reach forward to those things which are ahead. And I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's what you got to do. Envy is broken when we set our hearts on the playing field where no one is the competitor. How do we do that? Well, Colossians 3, 2, you set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. In other words, set your goals in terms of heavenly realities. Now, I was taught, not only in seminary, but in, in uh, business principles, that I need to set smart goals, specific, measurable, agreed-upon, attainable, realistic, and time-based. But you know, these goals are earthly-bound. And there's nothing in, uh, wrong with them. They're good. But what about these goals? My goal is to take the lower seat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And to be called higher because the bridegroom calls me his friend. My goal is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ with gold, silver, and precious stones to present to him. Here's a good one. My goal is to be known in heaven. I want people to know Rob Holloway when I get to heaven. Rob, I saw you down there loving your kids. I saw you down there sweeping that floor, bro. Good job. Come on in. I saw you loving that child. I saw you doing this and that. Oh, I saw you build that church. What a great job you did. No, no, no. I want to do things that will honor and glorify Him. My goal is to be great in the sight of God when I stand before Jesus without fault and with great glory. My goal is to stand before God's throne with the many other souls surrounding me of whom I might be able to say to Jesus, Here I am and the children whom God has given me. That's what I want to say. That's what I want to do. My goal is to hear these simple words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. For more information on Eagles Wing Church, visit our website at www.eagleswingchurch.org or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Eagles Wing Church. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.